You are listening to sermons from New Creation Reformed Presbyterian Church. And then seeking the Lord's blessing, will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And I want to read the first 11 verses here. <clears throat> or the first 16 actually, sorry. And before I read these verses, let's ask God's blessing in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful that it is by your power and by the proclamation of your word that sinners are brought to faith and that those who belong to you are built up through your word. And we pray that you will be pleased to, again, grant this great work that we as your people would be instructed by your word. We pray that you would keep us from error and help us to rightly understand what the scriptures teach. So we pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Acts chapter 10 and beginning at verse 1, this is God's holy word. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. <clears throat> When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. <clears throat> the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, as we come to this portion in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, we come to an extremely important moment in history. The apostles had been given the Great Commission. We know that already. 
they understood that their mission was to go to all the nations, go to all the, throughout all the world, and to make disciples of all nations. They knew that. They knew that the Lord Jesus was going to build his church. His people, his body, would be comprised of not only Jews, but of Gentiles. They would all be brought in and made one body. So they understood the Great Commission. But what wasn't fully understood is what the New Testament church would look like. What it would look like. You see, Peter understood that they were going to go out into the nations. And to one extent, he understood that he would be mingling among the world. And so he understood that by faith in Jesus Christ, there was great liberty as a Christian to be able to, even as he did, lodge at a tanner's house. You realize a tanner is one who, who uh, skins animals and uses animal hides for various things. And, and of course, that would be a ceremonial no-no according to the law of Moses, being around all those dead animals. But Peter understood that by faith in Jesus Christ, a lot of these things are being abolished. So he understood this. Up to this point, the Apostle Peter thought that the New Testament church would look very Jewish, however. For example, all of the males would be circumcised and the members who would come into the church believing in Christ would also begin to adopt many of the Old Testament ceremonies. After all, this is what had already been taking place. <clears throat> in other words, Gentiles would be brought in, but they would become like us. They would need to be circumcised. They'd need to observe the law of Moses to an extent, just as we do. <clears throat> God accepts Gentiles after they become proselytes and become part of the Jewish nation. Then they would come to Christ. But you see, what Peter is being taught here and what the church needed to understand now is that God accepts Gentiles as Gentiles. See, the, the Jews always understood that God would accept a Gentile from any nation. Anyone in the world could come from any nation and become part of the people of God. Uh, they would just simply have to be circumcised and then take upon themselves the, the law of Moses. But now we see that in the New Testament, the law of Moses is being put aside and the Gentiles are coming in as Gentiles. They would not need to be circumcised. And so we see that there is this uh, uh, great, strong sentiment among the Jews up to this point that Gentiles needed to become Jews first. Now, why was it there? Why was that sentiment there? Why was it difficult for Peter and the other Jewish believers when they were given this great commission? Why was it so difficult to see that God accepts Gentiles as they are? They don't need to adopt the law of Moses. They don't need to be circumcised. Well, it's because they understood correctly that they were a distinct people 
from the world. Now that's still true today. That's still true today. It's always been true. Do you not know, says James to us, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 6, beginning at verse 14, Paul writes this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has the righteous with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And that's said to you and me as believers in Christ. We are the church, the temple of God, and we're told to be separate from the world. Now, Peter, of course, and, and all the Jewish believers at that time understood that very clearly. They were a distinct people. However, living under the old covenant, God had given visible means by which they were seen to be distinct. There were regulations that were given to illustrate separation from the world. Clothing. You know, how the, no mixed fibers. Had to be one fiber. A hairstyle, how men would trim their beards. Food restrictions, dietary restrictions. The many ceremonies showed a separation from the world and the nations. And when you look at the history of the church in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, what you see is that rather than remaining a distinct people, what happens is that when they lost faith and trust in God, when they turned away from the word of God, they became like the nations around them. When they adopted idolatry, they also began to look like the nations around them. And all the way up to the Babylonian captivity, you see that happening over and over again. There's no distinction. After the Babylonian captivity and after the reforms through Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that there was a fierceness in the resistance of the Jewish nation to become like the nations of the world. And for centuries then, the Jews maintained their distinctness from the Gentiles. They would not have anything to do with it and they would maintain their look and their ceremonies. And so for believers living under the Old Testament during the days of the apostles, and moving into this period now, this transition, faith in Jesus would be practiced by maintaining these ceremonies, which would show that they are part of the church. They're still distinct. 
I told you about the Muslim man that uh, I spoke with at one of the uh, Muslim forums a number of years ago, and he was a seamstress, and uh, he designs and makes uh, all the vestments for the Roman Catholic Church. He's in Toronto, and uh, my jaw dropped when he told me that. And while I was still dumbfounded, he said, yeah, you make them Christians, and I dress them up to look like Christians. The idea that, that we show our Christianity by what we wear. Well, for Peter and the church at this time, there was this prevailing understanding that the ceremonial laws, particularly circumcision, was a way of showing that you are part of the true church now under Christ the Messiah. And so this is why they had thought that if a Gentile wanted to join, well, then of course they would need to become circumcised and start maintaining the law of Moses, even though they believed in Christ. That's what a proselyte was. You've heard that term before, proselyte. A proselyte was a Gentile who became part of the Jewish nation, circumcised, grew the right beard, would wear the right clothing, would adopt the diet, observe the feast, to be, become part of the Jewish nation, looking to Christ to come and the Messiah. So for Peter, the design of the church, the plan of the church in his mind, was outwardly to look very Jewish. That was just the default. We can't blame him for that. That seems to be what would mark the distinction between God's people, even those who would have faith in Jesus, and the Gentile nations. And you know, there are a lot of religions that are like that, aren't they? That their identity is bound up with a certain kind of look or clothing. You, know, you have Muslims who have a dress code, you have Mormons who have a dress code, you have the Mennonites, right, who profess a Christianity, and yet this is what it looks like. That's what makes us distinct. And so this is such an important moment in history. Because, you know, this is right, right at, the, at the time when the Apostle Paul is ready to go out to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to engage in that work as the Apostle to the Gentiles. And it's right here that Peter is taught what the people of God are going to look like under the New Testament. Jews and Gentiles will not only be one people together, They will not be outwardly, physically dressed up or distinguished from the world by the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. It's a huge turning point. A huge turning point. Gentiles don't have to become Jews. Christ has one flock. And there won't be distinctions among that flock. All will be equally accepted. And so it's very interesting when you think about how Moses was given the pattern of the tabernacle. Remember how God showed Moses the design of the tabernacle. Here's what it's, here's what it's about. This is like Peter being given a plan of the church, the design of the temple of God, the New Testament church. This is what it looks like. This is the pattern. 
There would not be segregation within the church. No distinctions. So it's a huge thing. And this is a huge theme in the New Testament. A large portion of the New Testament deals with this transformation of the church from being under the form of the Old Covenant and the ceremonies into its New Testament form, which is not under those Old Testament. The, the New Testament church emerged out of the shell of the Old Testament, much like a butterfly emerging from a chrysalis. See, the church was being renovated, was being renovated with the New Testament. Now that's helpful to keep in mind that we understand the movement from the Old Testament to the New Testament is one of God renovating his covenant people in the world. Just as you renovate a house or a barn, there are many things that remain the same. Keep that in mind. There are many things that don't change when you do a renovation. And that's like a butterfly. When a butterfly emerges from a chrysalis, you know, there are many things that remain. Caterpillar has eyes, a butterfly has eyes. Caterpillar has legs, a butterfly has legs. Caterpillar has mouth, butterfly has mouth. Many things remain the same. Yes, they look different. Their form is a little bit different, but the essential thing is still there. And so too, a Sabbath remains from the Old to the New Testament, but it's practiced on a different day. It's moved from Saturday to Sunday. The sacraments, the idea of the sacraments continue, but it's no longer circumcision and Passover. Now it's baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so you see there are things that change in terms of form, but things that remain the same. Children are still members in the covenant people of God. That's important. The New Testament, when you read about this transformation of the church from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the New Testament focuses on what is changed, not what is remaining the same. Now, every one of us should realize, oh, that makes common sense. Because I think almost everyone here has done some renovation on something, in a house or on a barn. And when you bring someone in to show the renovation, you tell them what you've done, right? You go in and say, yeah, I've re-drywalled, or yeah, we painted the walls here and everything. You don't begin and say, well, I want to tell you, first of all, there's a foundation here, you know. And by the way, there are studs behind that drywall. Now, I haven't touched those, but they're there. You don't speak that way. You focus on what changes. That's what's going on in the New Testament. The focus is on what changes. Circumcision changed to baptism. The focus is not on who gets changed. That never changed. Children always remain as part of the people of God. It's not needed to mention the fact that they're still part of the people of God. That's the focus. Well, there's this great transition, and that's what this passage is about. Now then, that's a long introduction. I want us to look at this passage and draw several lessons from it. Just three. Three. And here's the first lesson. All of us, all of us, including ministers, need to be taught. All of us, including ministers, need to be taught. We still have much to learn, every one of us. Now here we see Peter 
Peter's an apostle. Peter has been three years with the Lord Jesus. He was there from the early days. He was a disciple of John the Baptist. He knows a great deal. Peter is very knowledgeable. But he needed to come to a deeper understanding. He needed more knowledge. Now, if you look down at Acts chapter 10 and look at verse 34 again. Acts chapter 10 and verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Now what is he saying there? I didn't get this earlier, but now I understand that God shows no partiality. So he was taught. He was taught. He had to grow in his understanding. Up to this point, there was a great deal that Peter understood. Indeed, Peter's a super apostle. We've seen him boldly preaching and teaching. As an apostle, he held the highest office in the church as an apostle. In Acts 2.42, remember what it says there? All the people entering into the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Yeah, the church devoted themselves to the teaching of Peter. But Peter didn't know everything. He still needed to be taught. Peter was very godly, very holy, very wise, and yet not complete in his knowledge. He needed to grow. He needed more understanding. Now think about this. What would the church have been like had Peter remained ignorant concerning this great reformation of the church, this great transformation? What if he didn't understand that God accepts Gentiles as Gentiles? You know what's coming, right? That great debate about whether or not the Gentiles need to be baptized, or excuse me, need to be circumcised in Acts chapter 15, and everyone's speaking. Can you imagine if Peter didn't come to this understanding, how he would be standing on one side of the, the debate? I would suggest to you that if Peter didn't grow in his understanding here, there would have been two denominations formed at that point. The, the apostles came to a unified understanding on this crucial point, but they had to learn it. They had to learn it. And you see, this is a lesson for you and I. We are to grow in our understanding. Ignorance of God's truth does not help the church. It doesn't. And God wants us to think. He, he puts Peter into this trance. He's calling Peter to think about what's happening because he wants him to come to understand. And no one's exempt from this. Ministers, pastors, they need to grow too. They need to be learned. They need to be learned. How about that? But there you go, right there, right? I need my learning. A minister needs uh, to be mature in knowledge, able to teach, but he will never be complete. And there'll be differences of degrees as well. There's much to learn. Now, it's very interesting when we look at the two men here, the two main men that God chose uh, for this great lesson in church history is the Apostle Peter and this Gentile Cornelius. And these two are perfect choices to be used to teach us the lesson here. Peter, an apostle, devout, zealous for the law, right? We can see that even in his own speech, you know. And when you 
read the Gospels and you are picturing Peter going along with the other apostles, you have to keep in mind as well, he's still very zealous for the law of Moses, right? When, uh, when he is told in this vision, uh, rise, Peter, kill and eat, Peter says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. That tells you something about what Peter was like up to this point. Zealous for the law. And then you have Cornelius. As Gentile as they come. He's a Roman soldier. And he's stationed at the main base of the Roman Empire in the land of Canaan. Caesarea, named after Caesar. And it was made into a seaport. This is where the Romans would come in and unload all their car cargo and uh, uh, had a huge station there, a huge built uh, pillar of concrete that goes out into the harbor there. And there is Cornelius, a captain, as it were, in charge uh, over a hundred soldiers of what is called the Italian cohort. And that means that he's from Italy. He is an Italian. He's a, he is a Gentile of a Gentile. And he's part of this occupying foreign army. And he's not a proselyte. He's never been circumcised. He doesn't observe the feasts or the sacrifices. So he wasn't a proselyte. However, he loved God. He loved God. Now, this brings us to the second lesson. The second lesson. The first one was that we all need to be taught. The second lesson is this, that there are those outside the church who are not as bad as we think they are. Think about that for a while. There are those outside the church who are not as bad as we often think they are. Many times Christians can fall into the thinking that we, because we're Christians, because we're part of the church, that we're better than everyone outside the church. In fact, we might have an inflated view of ourselves. Like Peter, I've never touched anything common. But look at how Cornelius is described in verse 2. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. That's who this man was. A devout man. That means he was devoted to God. He was a believer. Cornelius would have uh, bought uh, an edition of the Old Testament scriptures and he would have read them. He would have been reading the Septuagint. He would have um, been learning from Jews at the synagogue. He had reverence for God and he believed in Christ to come, the Messiah. He led his household Right? He feared God with all his household. He was married. Being the head of the house, he made sure that his whole house would revere the Lord, including his soldiers under him. He tried to have an influence over the men under him to lead them in the way of truth as well. He gave alms generously to the people, to the Jews. He loved God's people. And so he would care for them. And it's very interesting. Think of this picture now. He's a captain in the occupying army 
of the Roman Empire. Think of what this man looks like with his soldiers, and yet he is as tender-hearted as they come, giving out of his wealth to the Jewish people over which he is a force to maintain order. Shows you what kind of a, what civil magistrates ought to be like, you know, that love the people and care for them. That's who this man was. He prayed continually, and not only continually, but regularly, set times of prayer Cornelius had. We see that he had this set time of prayer when he was given this vision. And you know, that just shows us, my friends, that God hears prayer. And God brings blessing and growth in connection with using the ordinary means of reading scripture and prayer. God hears and answers and brings that growth. But again, he, he wasn't a proselyte. Now, we don't know why. We don't know why Cornelius didn't uh, go the whole nine yards, as they say, and uh, became circumcised. Uh, whatever that reason was, he didn't. But you see, this shows us that he wasn't a member of the church at this time. That is the visible covenant people of God. He wasn't. He was outside. But you see, there are true believers outside the walls of the church. There are. There are people seeking God, praying to God, doing good. But for one reason or another, we don't know, but they're not yet in membership in the church. So don't think that everyone outside the church is worse than those inside. In fact, there are some outside the church who are better than many inside the church. Have you ever thought about how this devout man, Cornelius, this God-fearing man, how he would have been welcomed into the church when he finally came in? You know, when he and his household were baptized, and then it was, all right, welcome them in. It may have been a very difficult situation. He might have felt very uncomfortable or unwelcomed at first because of many of the long-standing attitudes and cultural differences. I remember when I first became a Christian and the third or fourth time I attended church and I still had long hair down to my shoulders and everything and came in there and an older member came up to me and he had his Bible open. 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace to him? This old guy said. And by God's providence, I had just read, like that day or the day before, about Samson. Never read about Samson before, but I knew he had long hair. And so I said, but don't Nazarites have long hair? But you see, there can be that kind of uncomfortable feeling. Someone coming from outside and not feeling welcome. Some Christian congregations are very unwelcoming. Remember Billy Graham crusade in the 1950s. And our church history professor was telling us about this, that at the Billy Graham crusade, they would invite all of these um, you know, uh, people from the African country to come in to hear this great evangelistic uh, crusade that Billy Graham was gonna preach. But standing at the door were workers of the crusade handing out ties to these people coming in, you know, who most of them weren't dressed or anything, but of course you have to have a tie when you go in to hear the gospel. Well, here you see that God had accepted Cornelius. 
He was an Italian, didn't look like a Jew, didn't dress like a Jew, didn't observe the ceremonies. He would have been considered by many inside the church as less pleasing to God, someone to maybe stay in his, on his own in the corner until he grows and becomes more like us than he can stay over there. And yet clearly we see here that this was a devout man accepted by God. In fact, heaven knew his name. Imagine that, an angel, Cornelius. You mean I'm known in heaven? They know who, who I am, they know my name. Your prayers have ascended as a memorial before God. Can you imagine that? So let's be very careful, brothers and sisters, not to think that we're better than all outside the church. And we're all prone to do this to some degree. Someone comes in, they attend, and it might not even be someone from, you know, um, atheism or something outside the church. Someone comes in from the United Church or the Mainline Presbyterian Church and immediately think, well, they, they have to be less if they're coming from then, there, right? It might not be the case. It may be that... Someone comes from the United Church, the, the mainline Presbyterian Church, the, the charismatic church, way out denominations, and yet that individual actually has faith in God, devout, believes more, prays more, gives more, loves more, and then comes into the assembly. We need to remember that. Now, we may know more as Peter knew more than Cornelius, that's for sure, he did know more. Peter had to teach Cornelius, that's why he was fetched for. But that didn't mean that Peter was more accepted or that Cornelius was less accepted. In fact, again, it's very interesting. <clears throat> when you look at the parallels between these two men, Cornelius and Peter, both Peter and Cornelius prayed to the Lord, and at set times. And while they were both praying to the Lord, they were both given a vision. But you notice the difference? When they were told to do something, Cornelius obeyed right away. But Peter protested three times, by no means, Lord. So that's an important lesson. Well, the third and final lesson that I want to have you consider is that even after we learn, even after we learn, we can forget. We can sometimes forget. It's the same Peter who was so clearly taught that all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they are accepted by him. The same Peter is the Peter who began to separate himself from Gentile believers. In Galatians chapter 2, we read this earlier. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, that is Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, says the Apostle Paul. Because he stood condemned, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, 
fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, how can you do this? It was you, Peter, who said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. They don't need to be circumcised. And yet now, Paul sees Peter not sitting with the Gentiles. He sees Peter going along over to the Jewish table and sitting with all those fellow Jews who have been circumcised. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul says, how can you force these Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, why wouldn't Peter say, hey, I'm not forcing anybody. I, I was just sitting over at this table. Paul says, you're forcing them. How? You're shaming them. You're shaming them. You are making them feel unwelcome. You are giving the impression that unless you get circumcised, you're not really where we are. And we're going to be separated from you. You see, Peter says, Paul, in this, you're making them feel that the only way that you will regard them as a brother in Christ is if they get circumcised. And in that way, by your powerful uh, expression, example, you are forcing them. You're forcing their conscience. You're making them feel bad for what they, who they are. And it's all because you're afraid of your Jewish brethren. Uh, you, and you're holding the wrong theology. But you see, Peter fell. He knew. He was taught. He understood this earlier. And yet he forgot it. And that can happen to us. We have to stay on top of our theology. We have to keep topping off our theology. Because we can lose good convictions. Convictions that we ought to have. And so these are the three important lessons, or at least three important lessons that I would have us uh, consider from this passage. Well, may the Lord bless us as we uh, apply them to our own lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that <clears throat> your word teaches us many things, uh, many things of principle as well as things of practice. And we pray that you will help us to learn them and help us to live according to them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to sermons from New Creation Reformed Presbyterian Church. God bless you.